So yesterday, I stood atop Mount Erie. (laughs) It was rainy, it was cold, it was stormy, and I was presiding over a wedding. (laughs) It's the wedding of Kenny and Jana Cole, and it was really cool. I mean, really cool. (laughs) It was... (laughs) It was blowing, it was raining, we were up against a rock on the side of Mount Erie there, and uh, Kenny, if you know anything about Kenny, was standing there barefooted, the groom, all of his groomsmen were barefooted, and here come the bridesmaids with their little shawls just freezing down, you know, and I have to tell you, I've done many weddings, it was one of the most profound, because of a couple of things, one, because of the weekend on which it fell which you'll understand if you don't already in just a moment. Very profound to me because I saw a picture, even standing up there on the mountain uh, doing this wedding, a picture of a God-ordained marriage taking place while the storms blew around us. And isn't that what we're dealing with in the world today? Simply trying to stand on biblical truth. I am impressed that we come to Mark chapter 10 on this weekend. It was not planned that way. I didn't open up to think about what we would be looking at in the next chapter or so of Mark until this week. And when I opened to Mark chapter 10 and read the first 12 verses, I realized that's exactly what we needed to talk about. So let's read those together and we'll talk about it. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him again about this. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. We live in a society that is misunderstood, marginalized, and ultimately messed up marriage. And you all know this, there's not a person in this room this morning who has not been touched in some way by marital strife or divorce. Perhaps you've gone through a divorce yourself, or perhaps you're a son or a daughter of divorced parents, or perhaps you've parented a child who has gone through a divorce. Everyone here has been touched by it one way or another. But as of today, November 4th, 2012, if we open our eyes, we can see why the Lord set certain standards for marriage early on. Why back at the very beginning... God said, this is what marriage is. And we can see, again, if our eyes are open, what begins to happen when we ignore, violate, or rebel against those standards. Society begins to crumble. We are watching our society crumble. We're seeing this happen. Something that many of us have already said many times over the last two, three years. I never imagined our society, I never imagined America could ever be in the situation that we're in right now. Today, again, Sunday, November 4th, we stand on the razor's edge of the very definition of marriage. And I couldn't have imagined we'd ever be here. Here we stand, Tuesday, the 2012 election. But it's an election that will, in Washington State, by the will of the people, define or redefine the legal definition of marriage. And so what I want us to think about this morning is how does Jesus define marriage? 
two questions that have been rolling around in my head all week long. How does Jesus define marriage? And will Washingtonians vote with Him or against Him? Because that's the decision we have before us. Please hear me clearly. And I can state this. This is not dogmatics. This is doctrine. If we honor Jesus, we must reject Referendum 74. Understand that when you look at the ballot, because it's not written clearly. In fact, you might look at it and say, oh, well, maybe I should, am I supposed to approve or reject? It looks like maybe approve. It's written very confusingly. Reject it. If you accept God's definition for marriage, reject R74. If you don't accept God's definition for marriage, if you would stand against Jesus, then by all means, accept Referendum 74. But if you honor Jesus, you must reject. Earlier this year, Senate Bill 6239 was written to legalize and redefine marriage to include domestic partnerships. Senate Bill 6239, it rejects traditional, historical, male and female gender roles in marriage. What it does specifically is legally make marriage in Washington State a gender-neutral institution. You all know what I'm saying. That means there's more than one option for what marriage means. It can be a man with a woman. It can be a man with a man. It can be a woman with a woman. Actually, gender-neutralizing it means all bets are off. Keep in mind... That same-sex domestic partnerships already have the exact same rights legally as married couples, and they have since Washington's Everything But Marriage Law was passed in 2009. So the only difference here, the only change that takes place with Referendum 74, if it should be accepted in Washington State, the only difference is the definition of marriage is washed away. Because the rights are already there. Some have argued, well, don't all people have the same rights? It's not about rights. It's about definition. And Referendum 74 seeks to redefine marriage. Governor Christine Gregoire signed the bill into law February 13th, 2012. It was scheduled to take 90 days after their legislative session ended. Uh, on June 7th, it was supposed to take effect. On June the 6th, opponents of the bill submitted over 247,000 signatures. 120,000 were required to bring it up for a referendum. But 247,000 were written to suspend the bill and require a statewide vote. And that is R74. Again, let me state clearly, if you honor Jesus, you must reject referendum 74. The agenda is marital legitimacy for homosexuals. That's the agenda. Just call it what it is. Marital legitimacy for homosexuals. Some might say, why not just give it to them? You know, what's the big deal? Live and let live. Tolerate and be tolerant. After all, Christians, isn't love about acceptance? Let me explain something here. If marriage is redefined in Washington State, those who believe marriage to be between one man and one woman will be legally liable under discrimination laws and could face legal action. Refusal to accommodate and recognize same-sex marriages would be the legal equivalent of racial discrimination. The power of government will work to promote this belief throughout our culture. Well, what does that mean? It means small business owners will be affected. Licensed practitioners, counselors, doctors will be affected. Nonprofit organizations, Salvation Army, some of the charitable organizations around will be affected. Parents will be affected. Students in public school will now have a new definition for marriage. The the reach of this is far beyond what many people realize. We would all be forced to comply with a new genderless definition for marriage. And I say this shaking. In fact, I told Cheryl, I, I typed this sentence and choked on the words. We live in a culture where the most basic of moral values can no longer be taken for granted. I used to assume, even when my oldest kids were younger, I assumed that at least I could send them to school and there'd be some standards. No more. So moms and dads with Wes and Christy, with little Ethan... You are responsible now to show your kids the truth. They're not going to get it anywhere else. They're certainly not going to get it in the public forum. 
Now, some would say, as someone did last week, Pastor Rick, you're a bigot for teaching that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Well, if if I'm a bigot, and if what I share with you this morning is bigoted, then based on his teaching in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, Jesus was a bigot. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. (laughs) I guess that's the big alert going on. Big alert! I I was taken aback when that word was used for me because I tend to think of myself as a pretty compassionate guy. No one wants to be called names. No one wants to be called intolerant. No one wants to be called a bigot. No one wants to be called discriminatory. But you know, there are some things we have to discriminate against. Evil is one of them. We have to be discriminatory against things that God is discriminatory against. Does God love the homosexual? Absolutely. Is He tolerant of and accepting of that lifestyle choice? Absolutely not. In the same way that I can't go out and just do whatever I want, and God's good with that. We have to be discriminating in how we live our lives. Everybody is. You can define something however you want. You can teach that truth is relative, and people do. You can teach that morality is flexible, and people do. You can treat righteousness as bigotry, but what you cannot do is change the unchangeable Word of God. You cannot change God's Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Amen. Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Understanding that, let me underscore something else before we go on. Every word of God spoken comes directly from a heart of love. And this is something that people sometimes miss, especially Christians who waffle in whether or not I can, you know, really take a stand, or whether I should stand up and say that homosexuality, for example, is is wrong. Or that homosexual marriage is wrong. I don't know if I can say that and be loving. God said it from a heart of love. It's love that is compassionate. It is love that is graceful. But it is also love that gives words of warning. It is love that gives words of judgment. It is love that defines things differently than we might understand or be comfortable with, but because love knows what we don't know. And the Bible tells us God is love. So when God calls something an abomination, we have to step back and say, whoa, those are rough words, but they come from a God of love. There must be a reason why He is so turned off by homosexual behavior, Romans chapter 1 tells us. If He's the God of love, He's the personification of love within Himself, then why is He so opposed to such behavior? Understand that God is a God of love. The question of marriage is at the heart of Jesus' teaching this morning. But let's see first where this whole question comes from. Okay, let's back up a bit. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Walk this through with me. Getting up, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around Him again, and according to His custom, He once more began to teach them. Jesus is heading south. I pointed this out last week. He has now left the region of the Galilee. He will not be back until after His resurrection. He's headed south, leaving behind the gentle rolling hills of the Galilee for the harsh, rugged wilderness of Judea. But notice where in Judea. Mark doesn't just say He went to Judea. He tells us He went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Map that out on your Bible map and you will notice it's what today is the so-called West Bank. But in Jesus' day, it was a region called Perea. Perea. P-E-R-E-A. Perea. Perea was a territory that was ruled over by Herod Antipas. Herod is the same Herod who would oversee the fifth out of six bogus trials against Jesus on that Thursday night before He was crucified on Friday. Herod Antipas is the one 
who had John the Baptist beheaded. Same Herod Antipas. Do you remember why that happened? Look back to Mark chapter 6 for just a moment. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. It tells us Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in the prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Okay, the wife of his brother Philip. He married her. Got it? For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. I'm not sure, but I think following that, he may have said, bottoms up. (laughs) Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head, and he went and had him beheaded in the prison. Back to Mark chapter 10. John the Baptist had called Herod and his sleazy wife adulterers. He labeled them adulterers because that is what they were, and he lost his head for it. What's that got to do with Jesus in Perea? Look at verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing Him and began to question whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Clever Pharisees. I'm going to give you four points to outline what we're talking about in this chapter. And that's point number one, clever Pharisees. The clever Pharisees show up and begin to open up the same issue against divorce and adultery that Herod had killed John over. If Herod would hear Jesus' answer, if they would get an answer from Jesus, they could use it against him. They could bring it before Herod. This guy's saying the same thing John the Baptist said. You took his head. Clever Pharisees. Note that they came up to Jesus testing him tempting him. And they were doing it both legally and religiously. Legally, if Jesus came out against divorce and adultery and Herod heard of it, again, he could bring Jesus to the same end as that crazy Baptist. Religiously, legal divorce was a hot-button issue in Judea. Especially in Jesus' day. There were two sharply opposed rabbinical schools of thought about divorce and remarriage about what the commandment in Levitical law meant. And if Jesus took a side, He very easily could alienate half the country. So whether He answers in a legally difficult way or a religiously difficult way, either way, we got Him. We got Him. Clever Pharisees. I'll tell you more about those opposing doctrines in a minute. But the Pharisees come with both barrels loaded. Alienation by the religious crowd or perhaps execution by the political power. Verse 3. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, what did the law really teach? Let's look at it. Keep your finger there and go back to Deuteronomy 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy 24. Right here at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. Deuteronomy 24. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. 
And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. That's it. Now, reading through that, perhaps you caught, as as I did, it's not even permission to get a divorce. It's when a man does it. God put parameters around when a man divorces his wife. He didn't say, hey, divorce is good with me. He didn't say, go for it, guys. I command you to divorce your wife in these instances. No, he didn't. He said, when it so happens that a man writes a certificate of divorce for his wife, here's the deal. If she marries another, she goes out from him, she cannot come back and be his wife again. That's it. That's the only thing we have in the entire Levitical law related to divorce and remarriage. The big debate is over what does the word indecency mean? It happens that she finds no favor, verse 1, in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The word is erva. In the Hebrew, erva means nakedness or shame. Nakedness or shame. If he finds some kind of naked shame in her, then he can divorce her. Or or then, and he sends her out because of this. Depending on your perspective, erva could have two implications, two meanings, if you will. Number two in your notes. The clever Pharisees come knowing there were two conflicting perspectives. Conflicting perspectives. The first perspective is the school of Hillel, the rabbi Hillel. Hillel was theologically liberal. Hillel taught the lenient and therefore more popular interpretation that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Any reason at all. If she burned dinner, it's in there. If she got a job outside of the home, If she spoke disrespectfully, if she spoke loud enough at her husband or at her in-laws or at the family, if her voice was raised loud enough that it could be heard in the next house, she's out. (laughs) I'm not going to say a thing, Sharon. (laughs) But Bill, we can talk later if you want to. The school of Hillel. School of Hillel even taught there were some of the Pharisees who believed that they had a moral obligation to divorce their wife if they found another woman who was more pleasing. Because that would put them in a conflict of sin and therefore they had to divorce their wife so that they could be with the other woman. You see how twisted this gets? They're not as clever as they seem, are they? That's the school of Hillel. And again, very popular perspective. Then you have the school of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai. Theologically conservative. A bigot. (laughs) Shammai taught that a man could only divorce his wife because of sexual shame or uncleanness on her part. Some of your Bibles in Deuteronomy 24.1 don't say indecency. They say uncleanness. And that's probably a better translation. Because uncleanness has more to do with the word ervad, naked shame. Nakedness or shame, it has to do with sexual impurity. That's kind of the point. If a man finds that his wife has been sexually unfaithful, sexually impure, there are things going on there that are untoward and unrighteous. In that point, if then he divorces her, if, not he must, but if he divorces her and she marries another, she cannot ultimately become his wife again. That's the law having to do with uncleanness. That's the way the school of Shammai taught it. You could only divorce your wife because of sexual shame or uncleanness. There are two conflicting theological positions on R74 today. You've probably seen on TV, if you've been watching cable the last couple of days, the barrage of commercials, and you've probably seen pastors speaking out on both sides of the issue. That's one of the more remarkable things to me is we have pastors coming out in favor of R74 thinking, I know what they're thinking. They're thinking we need to show love and tolerance and grace and and just open the door to all people. You know what? That is not going to draw more people to their churches. It's not going to make more people come to Jesus by watering down truth and righteousness. 
Who do we listen to? I see pastors saying one thing. I see pastors saying another thing. The Jewish people heard the Pharisees saying one thing, heard others saying another thing. Who do we listen to? How do we know how to react and respond in this culture? We listen to the Word of God. Period. doesn't matter what the pastor says. It doesn't matter what the rabbi says unless it is fully aligned with God's Word. And that's why we open the Bible. So we know what God says about the issue, not what man thinks. So Jesus, back in Mark chapter 10, He came down on the Shammai school. He came down on that side. He was aligned with Shammai, theologically conservative. Actually, probably better to say Shammai was aligned with Jesus. Matthew 19, verse 9, which we don't have in Mark, Matthew expands something Jesus said. Mark doesn't tell us Jesus said. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, that is, pornea, Pornea in the Greek is sexual immorality. It's where we get our word pornography come from, uh, comes from that word. Except for pornea, and marries another woman, he commits adultery. So the caveat, the one caveat that Jesus gives for a divorce is when the woman commits or when a person commits sexual immorality, when there's an affair, when there's sex outside of the marriage. But my friends... And I'm probably getting ahead of myself. But even though Jesus gives that caveat, He is still not saying divorce is fine. Ironically, the clever Pharisees were not so clever because they missed the whole point of God's Deuteronomic law on divorce in the same way that Christians missed the whole point of Jesus' teaching on divorce. Jesus didn't teach on divorce so that we could have a way out. The law in Deuteronomy was not given so that they could have a way out. It wasn't even a law that commanded divorce. It was an exception that permitted divorce in the extreme case of sexual shame. But there was also great love behind that Levitical law, the Deuteronomic law. What's the love behind it? Think about the law again. If a man does this, he sends his wife out, writes the certificate of divorce, and she goes to another man and becomes his wife. And that man either dies or divorces her. She cannot be taken again by the first man. What does this do? Two things. It staves off impure behavior. God cuts it off and says, no more. And secondly, ladies, listen. It was to stop the abuse of women. This is one of the more pro-feminine laws. That God says, husband number two, in a very patriarchal and male-dominated society, husband number one could not take his wife back after she had been with husband number two. Well, I'll give her a chance to sleep with her and then send her out again. It was to stave off this kind of sexual immorality that was going on in culture, and it was to stop the abuse. It was to literally protect the woman so she couldn't be taken again by the first husband. God said, man... If your heart was so hardened against her that you divorced her, you can't have her back. She is not a plaything to be tossed about. She is not to be toyed with from one man to another. That's the point of the law in Deuteronomy 24. But the Pharisees are like, yeah, but can we get divorced or can we not? What do you think? What's what's it mean? And Christians look at Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and they go, yeah, can we get a divorce or can we not? Do I have the loophole? We are not called to look for loopholes. We're called to listen to the Lord. Verse 10. I know this is hard for some to hear. Please stay with me. Verse 5, sorry. Chapter 10, verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. Number 3 in your notes. Clever Pharisees come along with conflicting perspectives. Number 3. Coronary petrification. Coronary petrification. The Greek word, by the way, for hardened heart here is sclerocardia. It's where we get our word sclerosis. Sclerosis, which is a hardening. Sclerocardia, a hardening heart. Listen, and I say this with love and with compassion, but it is true, divorce is always because of a hardening heart either by the offending party 
or by the one offended who is unable to forgive. And it, it truly can be one or the other. And if we're being honest, usually there is hardness in both. It's a hardened heart. I mean, if you happen to be the offended person at a divorce and you have a spouse who went out and had an affair on you, what does that do to your heart? It doesn't soften it. It doesn't make you love them more. It hardens the heart. God recognizes that it's painful. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's why Moses gave this law in the first place. Because if the heart goes hard, what are you to do? You are permitted to part if there has been this sexual immorality because of a hardened heart. But just so we don't misunderstand the Lord's feeling about divorce, let's make sure we're absolutely clear. Turn back to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures. Some call him Malachi, the Italian prophet. (laughs) Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. And you might even mark this or just note, this is God's heart regarding divorce. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Have you ever been there, by the way? You're coming before the Lord and you're like, He's not listening to me. I feel distant from Him. I'm praying, but nothing's happening. He's just not responding. Why? For what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what... Did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Notice he's talking to the men. Verse 16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, yet you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now hang on a second. Keep your finger there. Have we done this in the church by excusing divorce as the new normal? See, I think we have. There are those who are saying right now the homosexual issue in America is no different than the divorce issue in America 30 years ago. Well, what happened? Well, 30 years ago, divorce was looked down upon to a degree 40 years ago. And people began saying, well, we've got to be more tolerant, we've got to be more loving, we've got to be more compassionate, therefore we've got to be more accepting. And that's why the divorce rate among Christians and non-Christians is exactly the same. But in that day, in that culture, we needed to make some, you know, some exceptions. We needed to look for the loopholes and allow this and be okay with it. And here we are in this day, and the same issue is being raised with a whole different set of circumstances, two men or two or two women. Get ready for the next new normal. Gender neutral marriage. That's the one of this generation. That is the one of this culture where husband and wife would again just be one of three options. Note this, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And He delights in them. Or, or in that you say, where is the God of justice? What is Malachi saying? What is the Lord saying here? You say either God is apathetic or He really doesn't care about what He has spoken. Good, evil, it's all the same to a loving God, right? doesn't matter what you do. God loves you anyway. Well, that's true. No matter what you do, God does love you anyway. But that doesn't wash out the standards. I love my kids, but when they do wrong things, they're still wrong things. It doesn't change my love, my heart, my compassion for my children. It does change in terms of punishment. It does affect relationship. still love them. People say, be tolerant. Tolerate. And God Himself calls it 
treachery. Notice back in verse 15 of Malachi 2, he says, No one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. If you even had a residual of my Holy Spirit in you, you would not think like this. You just wouldn't do this kind of thing. Well, why, back to Mark 10, why didn't God make the standard of marriage more clear? He did. He did. Which is why Jesus took the Pharisees back pre-law to the very beginning, Mark chapter 10, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The definition of marriage came not from man, but from God at the very beginning. And His definition has never changed. Different cultures have tried to change it throughout history. We're not the first, by the way. Throughout history, different cultures have tried to be more accepting of relationships that go beyond the male-female relationship, homosexual relationships, and invariably, when a culture begins to accept that on a large-scale basis, the culture crumbles. You know what the statistic is, by the way, of homosexuals in America? Anyone know? Some people would say, wow, in Washington State it's got to be like 30-40%, right? The homosexual community would say... 10 to 15% at least, 3%. 3% of people in America are practicing homosexual. That is one loud voice in our culture. God defined marriage. Note that. Note the exact wording. God made them male and female. Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Steve, sorry, Steve. (laughs) It is so absolutely clear. Jesus grabs hold of God's command all the way back, Genesis 1.24, Genesis 2.24. Grabs hold of that and says, that's what God says. A man and a woman, that's marriage. End of discussion. End of referendums. The very fact that we are voting on this Tuesday is an absolute abomination before God. It's unbelievable we're even having the discussion because it's been asked and answered in the very beginning. Well, in the house, verse 10, the disciples began questioning Him about this again. And He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now again, the sexuality in here is absolutely clear. If he divorces her, and she marries another him, you get it? There's no room in here for any other option for marriage. I've been asked many times over the years, what does this mean? What does this whole divorce and remarriage issue mean? And that's what the apostles ask. They go into the house and go, can you give us a little more explanation on this? (laughs) Which they were always doing. What does this mean? He means what he says. He says what he means. It is what it is. Yeah, but what does it mean? Read it again. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. By the way, in the midst of this difficult but true teaching of Jesus, did you notice the equality? This is radical here. Radical teaching. Not only in Israel, but in Jesus' day, in the entire civilized Greco-Roman world, women had no right to divorce. You couldn't do it, ladies. No matter what the man was doing, no matter how sexually inappropriate and impure he was, you could not leave him. You had no legal right to do so. Jesus, Jesus recognizes both man and woman in this. He deals with them both Equally. Now it's difficult teaching because it has to do with committing adultery. 
If you do this, men, you're committing adultery. If you do this, ladies, you're committing adultery too. And again, the one caveat is Matthew 19, verse 9, except for sexual immorality. But Jesus makes His Word for everybody. Male and female alike. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 Neither male nor female. Jesus said it. He's not talking about sexuality here. He is talking about equality. He is talking about fairness between the genders. That a man and a woman are looked at exactly the same way by Jesus. When you come into faith in Jesus Christ, women, you're no longer lesser than. There's no longer the battle that came with the curse of Genesis chapter 3. The curse is lifted. And men and women can walk side by side like we were created to walk in the first place. But Pastor Rick, are you saying if someone divorces and remarriages, they are an adulterer? Jesus just did. I didn't say it. Yeah, but what does this mean? Again, read it. There's really no way around this. But you need to hear the heart of Jesus. Any sexual union beyond the original sexual union of one man with one woman in one marriage is by definition adultery. There's no other word for it. Now, I'm not looking to label anyone, but there's just no other thing you can call it. And again, Jesus said the only exception is when a person's spouse has broken that union by their own sexual immorality. But even that is not a wide open door to divorce because as we clearly read in Malachi, God hates divorce. He hates it. Why? Because it's so painful. Those of you who have gone through a divorce, was it fun? Did you enjoy it? Was it freeing? Or was it a mess? God hates that. The Father's heart and the clear teaching of the Word is that even where divorce is allowed, it is not His first choice. Before I say anything else, listen. If you failed in that area, if you're on a second or third or fourth marriage, or or perhaps you're unmarried, but you've gone through divorce, and if you ask, what if I divorce for all the wrong reasons? What if I remarried years ago? Am I now living in a state of adultery? That too is a Christian misnomer. I don't accept it. Did you commit adultery? Probably. If there was, especially if there was no sexual immorality, yeah. If you divorced and remarried, yeah. It's called adultery. Or am I, am I now in the state of adultery? And if so, do I need to now divorce my spouse and go back to the first one? Well, the Deuteronomic law says you can't. So that's out. So do I divorce again? Oh, great, because God hates divorce, we're going to do it again. (laughs) So then, do I have to walk in shame the rest of my life as a divorced adulterer? No. Come on. What is the heart of Jesus? Don't go backward. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Listen closely to this, everyone. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that is, if you've ever had sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, that is, if you've ever had a belief system other than Jesus, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, Which means, Steve, even if the pants were too tight in high school. (laughs) That is too, isn't it? (laughs) Nor homosexuals. Nor thieves. Nor the covetous. Nor drunkards. Nor revilers. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's it! And if you don't think you're on the list, I would add, nor the prideful. (laughs) But don't miss what Paul says in the very next verse. Such were some of you. What does that mean? It means you were an adulterer. Not you are an ongoing adulterer. You were. Okay. Guess what? 
I was a sinner. Every one of us in here, we're sinners. Every one of us in here have a past. Every one of us in here would fit the first two verses, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6. But Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And Jeremiah the prophet sat on the Mount of Olives watching Jerusalem burn and God's people at their lowest point to date and wrote these words, Lamentations 3.22, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So if you have been in a broken marriage or you have a broken marriage in the past and there was adultery that is connected to that and you feel like, wow, I'm one of those people, you were, not you are. There's only one unforgivable sin as I read it in Scripture and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All other sin is forgivable by the Lord God. So what do I do? Repent. Turn to God. Repent doesn't mean look back and try and fix the mess. You can't. Repent means you turn to God and you move forward. You continue to go forward with Jesus Christ. Not with Obama. With Jesus go forward. It's his his campaign thing. You know, forward. Don't go back. Jesus knew something the Pharisees did not know in this confrontation. What is that? Jesus was headed south. They didn't know that. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. They didn't know that. Jesus was going to the cross. It's what they were hoping for, but they didn't know it. And so even as they confront Him with this, even as they lay out this politically volatile, religiously legalistic trick question of divorce and remarriage, Jesus' eyes are already set on your forgiveness and mine. Isn't that great? Oftentimes, we don't know what Jesus is up to, but He is always heading down the road of grace. And He was doing so in this very moment. If you have been divorced, repent, take it to the cross. If you've had an affair, repent, take it to the cross. If you're struggling with forgiving an adulterous spouse, repent and take it to the cross. That's God's will for us. Now back to the issue at hand. How does Jesus define marriage? Let me end with this. Jesus defines marriage with a paradox. A paradox. Look at verse 6 again. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Side note, does Jesus believe in evolution? (laughs) Down through the billions and billions of years of evolved life, God made them male and female. God created evolution. Get a clue? God created, period. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Did you hear this? Listen. Clever Pharisees bring their conflicting perspectives and their coronary petrification. They bring this to Jesus and He takes us directly to the Creator's paradox. Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. Listen, in the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. You see the paradox? Listen closely. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It gets more specific. Back in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. Moses writes that he created them, male and female. He blessed them and named them man. Adam. In the day when they were created. Note that. He named them Adam. Not Adam and Eve. He created them and made them Adam. How's that possible? It's the marital paradox. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement, but it's still true. Genesis 2.24 tells us, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall, the two, shall become one. One flesh. We stood atop Mount Erie, and this is what I shared with Kenny and Gianna. You are about to become one flesh. And it is the most profound thing in the created life of man and woman to 
become one flesh. The word in Genesis 2.24, one flesh, the word one is the Hebrew word echad. Echad means a uni- unity of oneness or a plurality of oneness. That there's, It's one, but there's a plurality within the one, which is what a marriage is. That same exact word is used in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Echad. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A plurality of oneness. And God takes that word that describes His nature and applies it now to man and woman who become one. Here's my question for you. Can a gender-neutral partnership truly be one? God defines marriage as a joining of male and female, a wedded, fruitful, one-flesh union. And however politicians or activists or well-meaning souls may try to redefine that union, it can only ever be a marriage of male and female. Why? Because a gender-neutral partnership cannot produce a child. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible that the two, a man and a man or a woman and woman, can come together and between the two of them produce a fruitful offspring. It can't happen. Only the one flesh union can do that. Only the one flesh union. Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and God said to them in the command form, be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every other living thing that moves on the earth. We were created in such a way that one plus one equals one. That's marriage. And it can only be between a man and a woman. It's not bigotry, it's blessing. It's not intolerance, it's truth. And that is God's Word on the matter of marriage. That's what marriage is. Please take the Bible into the booth this Tuesday. Did you see in the news a woman had a shirt that said, Vote the Bible? She went to vote and they wouldn't let her. Yeah, she was turned away. She had to go and come back not wearing that shirt because it was too uh, politically activist. So I would encourage you just to take your Bible. (laughs) Vote the Bible on Tuesday if you haven't already voted. And reject, reject, reject R74. Let's stand up together.